You're listening to Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. And we are a husband and wife team that runs an environmental education nonprofit focused on connecting students to the environment. Here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals in the world of conservation science and the environmental movement, and we ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is brought to you by the Wild and Scenic Film Festival in Nevada City, California. Wild and Scenic presents environmental and adventure films to illustrate the Earth's beauty, the challenges that our planet faces, and the work communities worldwide do to protect our home. Join us as we discover just how these dedicated people are working to protect our planet. Let's get to the show. Alrighty guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. We are so excited to be here at the Wild and Scenic Film Festival in Nevada City, California. And we're even more excited to be sitting down for this episode with Serena Simons. Uh, She has the coolest title that I have ever heard on this podcast, (laughs) which is a human bear management specialist for California State Parks, which is, we're going to dive pretty deep into that. (laughs) Um, But she also was the director, editor, and narrator of a film called Big Basin Speaks, which is why she's here at Wild and Scenic. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. (laughs) (laughs) We're really excited to have you. So, gosh, I'm torn. Do we start off with Bear Human Management Specialist or Big Basin Speaks? Let's start with Big Basin Speaks. (laughs) Okay. Because I'm sure some of the bear management stuff is going to come into that. Uh, And and what else I didn't say in that introduction is that she also helps host and produce the Earth to Humans podcast as well. So this is kind of a fun reversal for her to be on this side of the podcasting world. It's very uncomfortable, but I'm so excited (laughs) to be here. Well, you're doing everything great so far, so no worries there. So tell me a little bit about uh, Big Basin Speaks. What is the story you're trying to tell with it? Yeah, so Big Basin Speaks is a short film we produced uh, through California State Parks. Um, Big Basin Redwood State Park is one of our kind of crowning jewels in the California State Park system, or formerly used to be um, before the fire. Um, Before the fire, it was this really lush, kind of primordial dense, green, beautiful place with lots of water and um, all different kinds of forest uh, structure and great habitat for lots of wildlife. And it was just such a destination for people. They'd been going there for their whole lives in, you know, great campgrounds, um, just a beautiful spot. And um, the the CZU Lightning Complex Fire was this huge wildfire. It was actually multiple fires that were started by lightning um, in Santa Cruz in 2020. Um, and it just completely devastated the park. Um, 97% of the park burned. Wow. And, um, you know, going there for the first time uh, after the fire was really hard. And yeah, it was very sad and devastating. And I definitely cried and had, um, you know, it, it, t- it takes a moment to get used to when you just see what it used to look, look like. And then you see sort of Mars blackened landscape and you just see buildings like our headquarters building burned completely um you know just a lot of history burned um during the fire we lost a lot of wildlife um so it was a pretty devastating fire and a lot of our um 
park employees also lost their homes. Um, I think somebody's pet tortoise also didn't make oh, it. No. So, yeah, you know, it was just really hard for a lot of people. Um, a lot of the folks that were working the fire line were unable to save their own homes. They were trying to evacuate people, evacuate campers, day users, um, people in the local town. So, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty pretty big devastating fire um so big basin speaks was kind of uh came out of the ashes of that and we were trying to figure out how do we tell the story of big basin um in a way that feels right and what we kind of came up with was creating a story from the perspective of big basin herself um you know narrating what it felt like how fire used to be for her and how this devastating fire was so different from um, you know, fire under the stewardship of the indigenous people that used to really dominate the area. And so um, we just wanted to kind of honor her story and just kind of put folks into a, a position of really um, empathizing with what actually happened that that day and subsequent days, because it's it, it was burning for almost a year afterward. Oh, my gosh. To, um, through root fires and things like that. Right. So it was a huge fire. Yeah. That's so, crazy. So fire has been a part of this ecosystem for thousands and thousands yeah. of years. I mean, that is what Redwoods developed around Absolutely. is periodic fires of the entire ecosystem, you know, piece by piece at a time. So what makes these fires that we've been seeing in the the headlines over the last couple of years so different and so much more devastating than the natural or the previous state of kind of periodic, shorter, less intense fires? Yeah. So, you know, um, the original stewards of this landscape would use fire all the time, um, understory burns, which were kind of, you know, to the forest, very gentle, um, kind of clearing out that undergrowth and opening up space for other vegetation to grow. Yeah, and those tall redwood trees, they don't even have branches up and, you know, maybe 50 feet from the ground is like the first branches you'll see. So they were definitely adapted and other cedars definitely adapted for fire. Um, but the the problem with these big fires is they, they're A, big and B, really intense. And we've also had, you know, hundreds of years of fire suppression um, going on not only in the park, but in the surrounding areas. So we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of dense um, understory that's just been building and building and building. You have duff of, I think, five feet of pine needles that we could, you know, you kind of bury through and you, you aren't even reaching dirt. It's just pine needles. It's just, you know, the litter from the trees just building up over time. And it's just... Which um, previously would burn away each... Exactly. You know, you we're sort of thinking of like a carpet fire, right? Like exactly. a, a low burn that doesn't reach to the crowns of the trees. It's clearing out all of the dropped organic material right. from, you know, needles and pine cones right. and, and the smaller species of plants that are reinvigorating the soil right. as they're burned and they're re releasing those nutrients back in, but that doesn't affect the trees. Right. And we call all of that ladder fuel. So you think about, um, you know, something in the, the understory, um, if you have enough ladder fuel, it can create kind of a ladder to the upper uh, overstory of the trees. And, and that's when you get into some really dangerous um, problems is once it reach, reaches the overstory, it just takes off and takes off. So even the trees that were adapted to fire really struggled. Um, and, you know, the, I think the great story that 
for me came out of this was going back to Big Basin over the course of several months. So from the first, um, my first visit post-fire, super devastating. The next visit, you start to see some of those basal sprouting of the redwood. So you look at this huge blackened redwood and you think, oh my gosh, this this tree is dead. Um, and then you you know come back a month later and you see new growth at the bottom of the tree and epicormic sprouting in the tops of the tree. And then over months and months, it just gets bigger and bigger and they grow really, really fast. So you see this tree that you, you look at it and you think it's dead, but really it's alive. And it's just going to take a while for it to look how it how it did before the fire you know not in our lifetime will we see big basin look like how it looked but um the forest is definitely resilient and, and still alive for yeah sure. absolutely so what did the production of big basin speaks look like because you can't really you know predict the forest fire right so you can't be like okay we're gonna set up and go film and we're gonna capture all of these moments and then like right after the fire where you were, were you and your team immediately like, okay, we want to make this film? And so you started like filming the regrowth or was it a longer process? I'm just curious about like what all went into that. Um, it was definitely a longer process. And I think immediately after the fire, we just wanted to document. We wanted to see how the forest was coming back, what was coming back, what wasn't coming back, um, how devastated the certain wildlife populations were. Um, you know, when you walk through, we would see squirrels and coyotes just kind of mid-fleeing um, and just charred. And, you know, so it was just sort of like we wanted to see what what the fire did. And so we just started documenting. Sorry. Basic descriptive science. Totally. What happened? Totally. Let's get some data. Totally. So we were getting data. Um, and then over the course of getting that data, we were like, how do we put all of this together in a way that would be beneficial to our healing as state parks employees, but also, you know, the larger community of Santa Cruz um, and also people that love this place that grew up going there and across the world. It's it's so well-renowned as a, a destination. So we just really wanted to tell the story of the fire and also the bigger picture of the story of the forest. And I feel like it, it kind of got distilled over the course of several months as we were collecting that data um, and working with some of the state parks employees, um, the environmental scientists and folks that were doing the research and just trying to come up with how do we how do we tell this story? Um, and it, it kind of came in came together that way yeah what's really interesting to me is that this started out as data collection right we just need to document what happened here but in sort of overhearing sarah catherine watching and listening to it it's very much an emotional narrative right it's it's from the perspective of the forest itself and it's it is very evocative of emotion and experiential like that even the word choice that you're using is that the crackling that has its own onomatopoeia in the word itself and it's just a really interesting blend of science used to convey emotion and emotion used to promote action um, which is a really hard needle to thread um, and i i think that that's a really interesting component of this story that we're talking about right now is that it is science used in pursuit of art used in pursuit of action mm -hmm. yeah absolutely i think that that's exactly what we were trying to do with the film yes. so, <laughs> i'm glad that that was that came across we um, didn't even have to watch it to get that <laughs> but yeah i mean all the all the narration was very specific uh my team uh portia halbert 
Ashley Weil and Elizabeth Hamak were all state parks employees. Um, all all three of them work in out of Santa Cruz, um, and so I was kind of brought in as like an outside person just because of my filmmaking abilities. But we worked really closely. Uh, lots of word doc iterations of reworking this the story and the narration, and ultimately we came together and. Um, came up with the final product together, um, but it was it was challenging because we, yeah we didn't we didn't want to be too sort of warm and fuzzy about it you know we wanted to be real and just sort of putting ourselves in that position of if we were the forest what would it feel like what would it sound like what would it um, what kind of emotions would it evoke and so we just kind of tapped into all of those senses because you know while I I do really let science lead me um, there's still such an emotional element to something as old and ancient as a redwood forest you know like we can't even comprehend what that forest has experienced or seen or you know it's how it just, communicates right and this is just a blip in its lifetime that we're trying to capture um and so that was also in the back of our minds is how do we do this justice by you know putting our little human brains to this but um i i think we did a pretty good job and i'm really really proud of it yeah i think y'all did an amazing job conveying that as well and i wanted to ask what was it like for you to be the voice of the forest basically how was that process for you like emotionally like i imagine <laughs> i imagine there was some emotion in it right i oh, mean definitely. like you already said so what was that like for you yeah it was emotional um and i it, I think I narrated it out of sort of necessity and ease because, you know, we were state parks. We don't have the biggest budget in the world, but, (laughs) you know, we we try to do a lot of things in-house. And so, um, you know, I have had other kind of narration experience and I just thought it made sense to to just do it myself um, and see how it went. Um, and then I got my team's uh, buy-in for the final product. So ultimately it was, you know, like a collaborative thing, but I took it really seriously when I was, when we were coming up with the narration and and also the delivery of the words too, um, trying to be as clear as possible, trying not to um, speak in my Southern California accent, <laughs> you know, trying to just be like a very neutral voice and have all of that kind of knowledge in the back of my mind as I was trying to tell this story. So, um, yeah, it just to me was like, if the forest could speak, what would it sound like and what would it say? And that was just what led everything for me. Yeah. How long was the development process? Like going from concept to finished product took how long? Uh, I would say at least a year. Um, because it was really hard to get into Big Basin for a while. You know, the roads were all downed with huge trees. And while we were filming, you could hear trees falling in the forest. So it was a dangerous place That's to terrifying. be. Yeah, it was scary. <laughs> it was scary. Um, and so for a while, it was just access was challenging um, to get in there, to plan, to have um, people, at, you know, escort you in there and lock the gate because we don't want the public in there while all of this is happening just for safety. And like I said, the fires were still burning. Um, so, you know, we, we were wearing gear to walk in the areas and fire boots and all that kind of stuff. So um, 
getting enough footage was challenging in and of itself. And then the post, you know, development of the script and everything else. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say probably at least a year, maybe a year and a half to final product. Um, so it was definitely a, a longer for a three and for a, a half, three and a half minute, three yeah. minute and 40 second video. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> kind of like with lava flows, how, you know, you have these flows of lava and they harden over and you have that hard lava on top, but there's still like, very hot lava Molten flowing beneath yeah. it. So, yeah, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. And learning about root fires is fascinating if you're anyone listening is interested at all. But I'm interested. It's really cool. <laughs> so, like, the root root networks underneath the forest are amazing. And um, we're learning a lot of science about how trees communicate with each other. And there's been some cool studies on wildfire and how trees that are immediately hit by the fire can communicate to, tr- you know, trees way 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 away like what's happening and that you know like sort of prepare yourself for impact basically um and so a lot of you know the fungal networks underground too are doing a lot of that work and so with the fire the root fires you just kind of get a sense of how interconnected everything is um because yeah even after a fire is done a year later for roots underground deep deep roots underground to be burning is pretty amazing to kind of fathom so um yeah it's just one more cool thing that i've learned over the course of this process but yeah that's it's fascinating and you know i mean literally what we're talking about here is organisms of different species different individuals have an interconnected root network that is able to pass signals from organism to organism miles away and that is both the the plants themselves, but also the fungal network that, you know, people think fungus is a mushroom Mm -hmm. and that is the fruiting body. Mm -hmm. That is the flower on the bush. And the bush is these threads that are in the soil that are providing all of these incredible auxiliary services of communication and nutrient transport and providing habitats for, for bacteria that keep the soil alive. And we are only like literally in the last decade really seriously looking at the roles of these networks and how they keep the soil and the forest. I mean, you literally have massive, I mean, trees that have diameters measured in the tens of feet that are supported by these fungal networks that are almost impossible to see with the naked eye. It's just this absolutely fascinating field of study that if I had a thousand lifetimes, 100% I would be studying like root and fungal networks. Me too. Or or being a glaciologist. That would be cool too. That but would be dope. fun and yeah. very different. <laughs> but yeah, even, even altruism among trees, you know, so trees that are... Oh, you know, a, a neighboring tree that's either got bark beetle or is sick or, you know, is being af- affected by drought and needs more nutrients or needs more water. Um, they're finding that trees and, and their fungal networks can actually supply nutrients to neighbors, you know. So, tree, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. Um, if trees are able to share resources and, um, you know, be good stewards to each other and be good neighbors, I think we could easily do that, too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it brings into the conversation the difference between old growth undisturbed forests that have these well-developed networks and, and areas of land that were converted to a different purpose like farming or housing that have since been allowed to be reclaimed by forest, but they lack the highly developed 
fungal and root networks because they just haven't had the time to develop them. And the ability of old growth to withstand environmental pressure changes is much higher because they have this community around them that is highly interconnected, genetically related, um, which you just don't have in anything that's not old growth. It's, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like we don't really we didn't really understand what we were losing when we developed these old growth forests and changed them. And now like to develop that is a hundred year plus long process. Um, so it's it's really a, a cautionary tale of, you know, really understand what you're doing before you do it, because you can have in our lifetime irrevocable changes done. Yeah. You think about humans too, right? Like we look to our elders for wisdom and knowledge and experience to kind of help us uh, with the challenges of today. And the trees are kind of the same way. When you have older growth forest, it knows how to adapt. It knows it's it's been through the ringer before. It's experienced drought. It's experienced bark beetle. It's experienced fire. Um, and so it's just definitely much more equipped for that. And we even can see burn scars of previous fires, you have an old growth forest that can stop a fire basically. Um, and you see um, a structure of forest that's been planted with just the same spruce tree and they're all the same age. Um, they can just be wiped out so easily by one thing, right? So one little disturbance can just completely um, just change everything. And so when you have um, genetic diversity, you have age diversity, all of that in the forest can just help it better withstand as a whole. So we definitely want more diverse and older growth forests and we wanna keep what we have left for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So what does the forest look like now? It's been a few years since this fire. I know you said things are obviously a little different. It's going to take hundreds of years to kind of get back what we knew it as. And how has this kind of change in what the forest is and what it looks like, how has that changed and affected your job? Yeah, um, the forest definitely looks very different from how, if you've ever been there, how you would remember it before the fire. And like I said, in our lifetime, it's never going to be like that. Um, but the good news is the forest is definitely alive and it's definitely thriving. Um, there's exciting new growth happening all over. So it's definitely greened up quite a bit since the fire. So, you know, just like tall toothpicks of you know, blackened toothpicks. It, it doesn't look like that anymore. There's toothpicks with little green fuzzies on them now. So, um, you know, it's it's exciting when you know what to look for and you can kind of appreciate, you know, that we are just a little blip in the timeline and that at our little human time scale, yes, there's not a lot of movement. But, you know, if you think about 500 years from now, the forest is going to be totally okay. You know, if we can continue to be good stewards and try to avoid these huge devastating wildfires, you know, every every as often as they're happening especially in california um i think the forest is going to be just fine and but we have inserted ourselves now into its ecosystem so we can't back out from that we have to manage it we have to maintain it and so state parks is doing a great job of doing that we have all kinds of programs across the state we have really robust partnerships with cal fire Forest Service and a bunch of other agencies where we have people really doing the hard labor of um, doing prescribed burns, which are burns done under very optimal, precise conditions um, so that we can do kind of those understory, lower intensity fires so we can still get um, the benefits of fire without all of the 
the devastation that can come with it. You're getting rid of the stockpiled fuel so right. that it doesn't explode <laughs> and burn everything, totally. right? You just keep that controlled, <laughs> yeah. as controlled as you can control a Absolutely. fire. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and what a story of hope too. I mean, this whole conversation, the word that's been like in the back of my mind is Phoenix, right? This beautiful thing that burns to the ground and emerges from the ashes, renewed, changed, different, but the same forest moving forward in a new iteration. And that's, I mean, the only thing constant in nature is change. Everything is disturbed. And in a lot of ways, nature needs disturbance, right? Which is why we talk about needing these smaller fires. And it's just what a story of hope that the forest is alive even after such a devastating fire, right? And I think, you know, for us as state parks, we really wanted to reiterate at the end of the film and with the message is that fire is not inherently bad. Fire can be so good for the forest. Like you said, it cracks open seed shells and just releases so many nutrients in the soil and the aerosolized trees that fall into ash. All of that is so good for the forest. Um, And so fire doesn't have to be this scary, devastating thing it can be a tool that we can utilize and help benefit everybody and keep keep us safer too so if we um kind of change that relationship with fire we're not afraid of allowing prescribed burns into areas you know and i think if the public kind of switches their tune around that i think we're going to be better off when um we're all kind of working together to sort of change Um, the perception of fire because yeah it is scary it is devastating especially if you've had to be evacuated from your home or you've lost your home or something like that you know fire fire has been a tool and can continue to be a tool moving forward absolutely and i think now is the time where (laughs) i'm going to change the tracks that this train is on because so far it has sounded like a bunch of fire and forest general forest management and your job is so much more i need to know what a day in the life of a human (laughs) bear management specialist is. So what is that position and what do you do? Yeah, so my position is basically within state parks and I work with a bunch of other agencies, um, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Nevada Department of Wildlife, Forest Service, our our local Tahoe agencies too, but um, we all work together to try to improve the health of our black bear population up in Tahoe. And I don't know if you've heard much about our Tahoe bears, but um, they're in the news quite a bit. not usually for great things, <laughs> usually for um, human know, bear interactions, <laughs> human perhaps. Bear interactions, yeah. Like getting in their hot tub getting, or something. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You're getting into someone's home or getting into dumpsters. So, um, you know, the, the classic Tahoe bear is a bear that uh, roams the streets with the utmost confidence, isn't afraid of people, you know, hits the local grocery store dumpster, the gas station dumpsters all the time. And it's just really um, unhealthy, like eating a lot of human food and garbage. And human food and garbage is so bad for bears. It rots their teeth. It's bad for their internal systems. It can kill them, you know. And then being close to people is dangerous too. Um, Getting hit by a car, things like that. So we try to do a lot of education to the public, especially since Tahoe is such a um, a hub for tourism and a lot of people that haven't ever interacted with bears or been in bear country. 
Um, so we just, we we're doing That's our such best. a recipe for disaster. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's a microcosm and it's, it's like this bowl of just bears and people and garbage. And so it, it's not great. And so we do our best to try to educate folks, do our best to kind of, um, help our bears stay more wild. And, you know, so we have tahoebears.org is our website with all kinds of resources, um, about how to live and play in bear country basically <laughs> um but you know a day-to-day -day is uh, every day is different in my job um in the spring summer and fall is when things really get kicking off um our bears are going to start waking up soon so i've had a nice little lull in my season up till now and we're gonna kind of get into our busier season again which means more bears more people um camping is going to start up again so yeah in the summer it's chasing bears around uh yelling at bears to keep them away from people and out of the campgrounds sometimes it's tagging bears putting ear tags on them collecting data monitoring their health um, sometimes it's getting bears off the roadway or dealing with a bear that's been injured so you know it's pretty wide range <laughs> what is easier for you trying to keep a bear away from people or trying to keep people away from the people bears? away from bears absolutely that is the majority of my job is working with people so yeah. that's why human is in my job title because not just bear not management. just bear management <laughs> i mean bear management is people management and i i don't think people realize that a lot but it is it's majority people management and trying to convince people not to take selfies with bears or try to touch bears or try to feed bears you know so in this whole conversation uh one of the the quotes that has just lodged in my mind which i'm sure you hear on a daily basis and it may be apocryphal I think it was a park ranger that said that the issue in designing bear-proof trash cans for use in state or in public parks is that there's a considerable overlap between the intelligence of the dumbest tourist and the intelligence of the smartest Absolutely. bear. And so designing something <laughs> that people can use, but bears cannot use is very difficult. It is. And I, you know, since I've been in this job, oh gosh, like seven years now, um, even the facilities we have in our state parks, in our campgrounds, the, I've seen the bears figure them out, you know, banging on them just right to pop the latch open or, you know, just it, it's pretty amazing their intelligence. It's just a matter of time before they all start talking and taking over. It's the idea that uh, <laughs> eventually the raptors learn how to open the doors. Exactly. This is the Jurassic Park system, right? <laughs> exactly. All over again. Um, what would you tell someone who wanted to do similar work that you do or wanted to follow in your footsteps, basically? Um, I would say we definitely need you. You know, there's a big... I mean, it's uh, everything I've described is like, it's a tall order, right? There's never enough people to do the work that needs to be done. And, you know, as climate change gets more intense and we start feeling the effects of it more, we're going to need more people with new ideas and different ideas on how to fix the problems of today and tomorrow. So um, I get really excited when I have those opportunities to talk to kids and schools and um, do campfire programs sometimes and just get folks really excited about science, about bears, about forest ecology. And so, you know, just do anything you can in your local area. If it's volunteering at your local wildlife rehab center or um, I know some local fire departments have volunteers. So just really anything you can do to dip your toes in and then just doing what feels right, right? So I can't imagine doing anything other than working 
for the environment. And so that's what leads me. Um, any job that I can and where I'm, I feel like I can help in any kind of way is the only way I can imagine myself living. So, I completely get that yeah. because it's like, what else would I be doing with <laughs> my life if I wasn't, you know, if we exactly. weren't running Last Chance Endeavors? Exactly. I literally don't know how to do anything else. And I don't think that I would ever be happy <laughs> doing anything else. Yeah. Um, and I, so I completely get that. And I was, I was going to ask, like, do you ever sleep? Because you have, like, <laughs> we have talked about 18 different types of jobs that you were doing all at the same time. Yeah, I'm always working. And that ties right into like, <laughs> hey, we need you, right? We need people to join this fight in any way that you can, right. whether it's as a, a film storyteller or whether it's as a, a data scientist who's collecting information or whether it's as somebody who's trying to keep people from feeding bears by hand for a selfie, right? right. It's we need people in every walk of life, in every position who are jazzed up about this fight yeah. and are, are willing to give their energy to it. It takes passion, absolutely. And so I think if you have the passion, you will find your way um and just know that we need you so uh, keep keep going keep moving forward and the other film that i have in the festival this year is about an ornithologist whose um specialty is one very specific subspecies of of bird and that's her whole thing is researching and trying to understand this one bird that was devastated by the the same fire uh, in big basin um and so you know like find your niche find find something that brings you joy that that is her her life's work and purpose and she really feels that that's what she was put on the planet to do and um you know find that and that can that can be anything that can be in your neighborhood you know you could travel for it but any any place on earth needs your help so yeah that's i love awesome. that and before we sign off now you have to tell me what the bird is because i can't <laughs> like i know other people have the same we can't question. leave it there yeah so the the film is called song of the hermit um, it's also playing in the festival, but it's about the hermit thrush, which is, you know, quote unquote, common bird um, that can be found all over. But sort of the, the story within the story is that this woman, Allison Nelson, who's studying the hermit thrush um, and trying to under understand how uh, the fire affected the subspecies that lives and breeds in Big Basin how it was impacted by that, but also how um, we're losing our common birds. So, you know, you think of those really char charismatic species, um, you know, lions and tigers and bears that we want to protect and have a lot of conservation efforts dedicated towards them. But we really have to start thinking about our quote unquote common birds and common species that support all those big charismatic exactly, organisms. Exactly. And that, and that we're losing those too. It's not just the, the big charismatic ones we're losing. So um, having people like Allison fighting the good fight and trying to understand a population before it disappears is really amazing and i applaud anyone who's who's spending you know any amount of time trying to understand that before we lose them you know so if her for her it's like a race to understand them before we lose them and i really really applaud her and other people like her for sure yeah what a story so to wrap up here uh serena your films are big basin speaks and the Song of the Hermit. Yes. And where can I link people to go watch those? Yes. So Song of the Hermit, we have those on goldcountryavianstudies.com. And Big Basin Speaks can be found on reimaginingbigbasin.org. And my personal website is serenasimons.com. 
if you want to check out some of I, I think I have those linked on there as well as well as other um, environmental films that I've done but yeah both of those can be found on those websites perfect yeah. so if you guys are listening scrolling down to the show notes I'm going to drop links right there so you can go straight from listening to learning more about this stuff I'm also going to drop a link to Earth the Humans podcast awesome. because <laughs> you know just I would imagine that anybody listening to this is probably interested in an environmental podcasts just as a wild guess um, so go check out Earth the Humans Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you, guys. This was a joy and a treat, and I, I had such a good time, even though I was nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We'd love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact, and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners, so if you heard something you'd like to learn more about, be sure to let us know. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts will help other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to the people working to protect our planet, and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next time. <laughs>